Welcome to ANC. My name is Jason. Um, I do most of the teaching around here, and so you'll get real familiar with sort of the loops that I live with in my brain as we try to figure out how to do church together and how to speak the word together. It's the, it's the greatest work of my life. I love this church. I love this place. And we're right now in the middle of a series we're calling All In Vision Series for 2019, where we're going back and we're talking about the things that we feel like are distinctives about us as a community. Last week, we did something a little differently, and uh, we heard from Dr. Jessica Godot and from my wife, Allison, um, and we heard about some practical opportunities to engage the refugee community here in Austin. Now, we've been building steam for that for a while, and so we finally took aim last week and kind of decided we're going to go after these four agencies. Uh, after vetting them and getting to know them and interviewing them, we figured these were the ones that we could work with. And then something extraordinary happened. I remember Allison and I talking before we came in the building last week that we thought that if 10 good volunteers signed up, that that would be a success. And then we buried those people. At the 9.30 service, there were 300 people walking down the breezeway. There was a line to get out of the building that was longer than I imagined uh, was necessary, but we just absolutely pummeled them with, with volunteers. And so kudos for that. Thank you for responding. What an incredible response. A word of caution as you wait for them to connect with you. What happens when you take uh, a nonprofit agency that's not used to seeing 300 volunteers at once and you just bury them with data? First thing they do is they go, mm, you know, and they're just so happy they brought one sheet and we're, mim- you know, mim- I was going to say mimeographing. That's super old. We're, <laughs> we're copying sheets so that they can keep track of all these volunteers. Give them some time as they reconnect with you because it's going to take a minute, right, for them to process through that. Um, I heard from some of those spokespeople from those agencies that they're like, what is going on here? Y'all are so different. And I'm like, right? <laughs> anyway, um, give them some time. And here's my advice to you. If you feel like you've fallen off the radar, persist, okay? Be persistent. Don't be afraid to call back and say, hey, two weeks ago I signed up. I'm curious. Is there anything I can do? So just stay in their windshield. Don't drift back to the rearview mirror, and uh, we will all find ways to get engaged. Now, I mentioned this before, uh, but Jessica was in the first service, Jessica Godot. Every once in a while, a word spoken in this place actually becomes part of our vernacular. Like, it becomes part of the way we think about the world. Jen usually does this work in her one-offs, right? Just pop in and change the world, and boom, she's gone. Uh, The the bishop does this, did this uh, late last summer. It's not something I usually manage to accomplish, but I think Jessica did this last week. When she said, our calling is to witness our sisters and brothers not witness to our sisters and brothers. I'm curious, did that relieve a lifetime of pressure off you? Anybody grew up in the super active evangelical church of any of its varieties? I'm looking at you guys, I'm looking at you right. Where we actually thought it was our job to go save the world, why? Because when everybody knows, then Jesus can come back, so he's just baby Jesus in heaven waiting on you to go knock on doors, right? You know what I'm talking about. What a weight of, 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 just what a weight lifted off by saying, you know, our calling is actually to witness them, to be with them, not to solve all of their issues. Jessica's going to be doing a series of 201 classes, and I, I forget what we've titled them. I, I, I think there's a super PC title. I can't remember what it is. You'll see it on the slide during the announcements. But she's going to take us deeper. If this headspace uh, is, is part of your reality, if you are thinking daily of the plight of the immigrants and the migrant people moving through this part of the world, if this is something that is weighing on you, pay attention to those two classes. They're going to be back-to-back Sunday nights from, I think, six to eight. Go deeper. She's bringing people in from around town who can tell you firsthand what it feels like to be in their situation because they are people moving through. And so looking forward to that. 
that was a, a great thing. All, as always, we catch everything on podcasts, and so if you missed it last week, go back and catch the podcast. So last week, the subject in our series was actually social justice. For us, it's so integral to the gospel that you can't make sense of one without the other. I know that's forward for some folks, but that's just how we see it. It's, it's indivisible from the good news of God, right? And so what you do about what you believe, I would suggest, is actually the most important thing about what you believe. What you do about it, what you do in the world about what you say you believe is more important than any other thing. I would go so far as to say, I'm not that concerned with what you believe. Let's talk about what you do. Let's get busy doing the work of Jesus in the world. And so James would call this action. Jesus might call this love, right? Deschardins would call it cosmic cooperation with all that is. Immanuel Kant would call this the inviolability of each, how you take others into consideration. My favorite of all American prophets would be Dr. Martin Luther King, who would simply call this justice. That's what we talked about last week. And so we're not going to go into a sermon on that. If you want to know my thoughts on that, go back to September 23rd and pull up a podcast that we titled The Poor Among Us, where I go a little bit deeper into that. So we're going to move past social justice, and we're going to start to talk about this new thing in our list. So we've started this series talking about our ecumenical posture, right? Our sense in which we don't have the only take on things, right? Then we discussed our value of corporate worship, sort of the opportunity of weaving your thread into this greater tapestry. Last week we got practical, we talked about social justice, but today we turn our thoughts to what Martin Luther King would call the beloved community, which I would call genuine community. Our statement reads this way, you can follow along on your screen. We see a church where people can find biblical community. You could, you could put the word genuine in there, just like biblical. We believe that the church should be the best place to build honest and encouraging relationships that speak, share, and seek to live out God's truth, something we've called genuine community. Let's hear how Peter might describe it. Now, neither Peter nor Paul are describing a vision statement as we are, but they're nibbling at the same thing. First Peter 4, 7 reads this way, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober mind and of sober mind so that you may pray. He begins to describe it here. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone asks, they, uh, they should do so as, if anyone speaks, I'm sorry, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. The thoughts of Peter. Thoughts of Paul in a letter he writes to the church at Ephesus go along these lines. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul's describing how the community interacts with itself. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is but one body, one spirit, to which you were called one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Their thoughts on the beloved community. So genuine community, I want to, I want to remind us, this is not something that when we say we see this, this is not something that we have fully materialized yet, right? We're working on this. We're working on it. It would hardly be clairvoyant of you to point out how we often fumble as we try to build this kind of community. It is a bit of a thing to manage, and yet we're moving in that direction. Peter and Paul both describe it in, in, in early language, not exhaustive, but it's the same thing that we're trying to describe in the statement that we just read. What are the characteristics of the community of faith? 
Is there more going on than just the preening and the performing that characterized the spiritual spaces that many of us experienced in full contact competitive church? Oh, come on, 11 o'clock. Anybody have that experience growing up? It seems to be the place where we got all our ducks in line so that we could show up and preen and we could impress people. Long before there was Instagram, there was bluster in church on Sunday morning, right? How are you doing? Oh, brother. So good. I call that full contact competitive church. What's the goal? To come out a winner, to be on top, to be thought of as the most spiritual, right? So we preen and we perform. It would be funny if it wasn't so true. We live in that daily gap between the community that the scriptures describe, the one we know could always exist, and the one we actually have at the moment. So here's my question for us today. Why do some of us find genuine community and some of us don't in this place? Why do some of us find it almost instantly and others, after a reasonable amount of time and a reasonable amount of effort, don't seem to find it at all? What's going on there, right? Maybe a better way to begin is to, be ta- is to talk about myself. Now, when we moved here in 2003, being a pastor is being in people's lives, so it wasn't terribly difficult to build real community for me, and yet that's not always been the case in my life. I can remember churches to which we were members of where we couldn't pay people to have lunch with us after church. It's that awkward turn where every, church is dismissed and everyone turns back to their families and everyone leaves in a unit and there are the Morrises desperately wanting to have friends and fit in and be part of a community. I remember times when I couldn't think of more than one or two friends. There are seasons of our lives where this is difficult, and my question is, what makes that so? Around here, we do our best to provide the right environment, to create the right culture. We do the best we can do to set set us up so that relationships form and they flourish. We say it this way, community is worth fighting for, and so we prepare you from the very beginning conversations we have with you that if it's gonna happen at all, you're gonna have to fight for it. It doesn't happen to you, right? It's not something you find, it's something you build. You take appropriate risks enough times in a row, you put yourself out there, and it will be the result. I promise you, it's relatively simple in its moving parts. And I have learned this, that it's hard to create, and it's even more difficult to maintain. And yet, many of us would describe our experience in church as anything but genuine, right? In fact, the truth is, some of us have received deeper hurt, greater pain, more lasting shame and judgment in communities of faith than any other space in our lives. Now, if, you, if that resonates with you, you know what it means to bear the scars of a community that just didn't operate on love. We could write books on superficial, shallow, conditional community that we were told was the real thing, and yet it came back to bite us. It was not the real thing. It could not hold our whole selves. I said it this way last week, and I think it still resonates to me. If you crave genuine community, then you should have known that such a beautiful thing is not something anyone can build for you. It's not my job as your pastor to connect you, to build community for you. You should have known that this was was gonna have to be something that you would have to build the hard way, brick on brick. The thoughts we think about God, which is what we generally reflect on when we're together, become the thoughts we think about ourselves, which in turn become the way we treat one another, which is what culture is actually made of, that social arrangement between us and what we elevate and what we don't choose to accentuate. And sadly, many of us come up in church cultures that were more focused on correcting, judging, 
and chastising our human impulses than they were on unconditional love and eternally self-replenishing mercy and limitless grace to which we all are recipients, however undeserving. Here's the thing. If you've ever dreamed of real authentic community where you can show up, unfold the chaotic complexity of your evolving and changing self and not suffer as a result, then you're in the right place. The community of faith is actually the right place, but we've got to understand the moving parts if we're going to build this together. I've learned over the years to build and maintain reliably honest, remarkably transparent, almost shockingly real sometimes, consistently vulnerable spaces in which to unfold my whole evolving and deconstructing, searching self. I've figured it out. I've worried less about what people would think of me as their pastor, and I've just gone with the delight of knowing and of being known. When it comes to parenting, I, think to the, I, I ask the fries what we're doing wrong. When it comes to marriage, I know how to read good books and get good advice. When it comes to reading and understanding the scriptures, honestly, I, I rely on Caesar to help me with his podcasts. A little aside, Caesar is actually someone we're going to be adding to our pastoral team here. Caesar is from Santiago de Chile, and his family right now live in Mexico. But we're in the process of bringing them here, and he will add Uh, an amazing amount to this ministry and to this city. When it comes to those things, I know who to ask, but when it comes to genuine community, I think I can speak to this with some credibility. It has literally saved my soul. It has renewed my imagination again and again. It's been the one thing I can't live without. When I could easily reject church and did that, I could not reject genuine community. Even in the process of rejecting the faith of my father's genuine community was something I could not throw out. It's actually what all of this is about, isn't it? Genuine community was the original vision of Eden. Think about it. A garden where love and coexistence was the only law. It's our past and it's our future. It has always been real enough for us to catch fleeting glimpses of it. We see it in moments and yet it's not real and present enough for us to be satisfied and so we continue to move in the direction. It's as if our heart speaks the language that we're only learning to speak with our mouths. Community is something that I think we universally crave. We know from the epic poetry of Genesis 1 and 2 that unnecessary isolation and relational distance is a thing that God is unwilling and unable to tolerate. So hear this thought. Here's the vision. Two separate but entwined, fully unfolded beings in the same space at the same time with mutually exposed vulnerabilities right there to be exploited. This was the Garden of Eden's original dream. Two beings willingly staying present while undefended has always been heaven's dream with us, to exist in that space with us. It is the fundamental building block of the cosmos, relationship. And it remains its loftiest ideal and its most essential moving part. Maybe my thoughts this week are more metaphysical than sermonic in form. You'd have to know what I'm reading to figure out why that is. But I want to know how things work. And it's going to have to be more than the Bible says so. I want to know how things work. Most most importantly, I want to know why they don't work for some of us sometimes. Because we're killing ourselves trying and we're coming up short. So let's get down to brass tacks. You ready? Genuine community only occurs when two beings manage to be fully present, and that's where it begins, which is another way of saying when they manage to avoid that ancient urge of hiding and filtering and staying on reserve from the sacred other, which is just another way of saying when two beings manage to lay down their fear, their filters, and their fakeness confronting the terror and the risk of rejection, and they lean in anyway 
That's where it begins. You see, they hurt each other last time they tried, but they talk again anyway. They weren't fully presenced or heard or empathized with last time they bore their heart, and yet they try again anyway. The last time they lost their cool, they did damage with words, but they line up another shot and they take it together again anyway. This is the raw material of genuine community. This is what it's actually made of. Not consensus, not chemistry. Chemistry won't last, young people, the newlyweds. It's going to last a while. That I do means I do for a while, and you will realize that you will overrun the gift of chemistry, and at some point, there's got to be something more, right? So if this isn't made of consensus or chemistry or ideological safety born of agreement, human relationships are made of something deeper, something more weathered, something that can last longer. It's the determination to show up anyway. Peter called this hospitality and stewardship in his letter. Paul calls it unity and maturity in different letters that he writes. I call it allowing the other, inviting the other. You can call it giving the permission for the other to show up. My therapist would call it inviting the other to show up, simple words. It's the same thing. It's the mandate that we have to be authentic, right? And it comes with a corresponding invitation for the other to show up equally and to be honest, and to be unfiltered, and to be real. And so now we're getting somewhere, because I'm gonna be honest with you. While I'm relatively good at showing up and being honest, I'm not as good extending that same grace for your unfolding if I happen to be personally implicated in the truth of your story, or if I happen to be the cause of your disappointment. You with me? You know that word, that word we hate? I'm so disappointed in you. You ever hear, you ever hear that in your life? Crumble just turned my insides into rubble. Those words are the end of me. And while I'm relatively good at showing up, it's a different story, and I'm learning the slow way to make space for your showing up. This is why relationships break down. This is why we join churches that we never fully join, we never fully get engaged with. Somewhere in this one-two movement of showing up and inviting the other, something keeps getting interrupted. This is why many of us have never experienced genuine community in church. We said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. You don't find this, you build this. You build it. So where's the hang-up? She's, she's pure delight. Don't y'all be stressed by that, baby. That's, that's our sensei right there, y'all. Go back to the summer. She is, don't, please don't be stressed. She's pure, pure sunlight in this place. Where's the hang-up? What are we missing? What's the secret sauce? Eckhart Tolle, Michael Singer, Joel Gold, Goldsmith would all say it's a single word, and it's a simple concept. It's called presence. Isn't that profound? We're so busy trying to live into the next experience that we're actually not here in the moment. Half of you in this building aren't actually here. Amazing how we do that, isn't it? Our bodies are here, but our minds are not. We're already on to the next thing, and without real presence, real community will never exist. All we have left is preening and performing and posturing towards one another. We're not, missing, we're not witnessing the divine spark of God in the other. We're trying to be heard. We're not slowing up enough to understand because we're too busy trying to be understood. So the raw material of true relationship isn't here because we're not. And this is where people fail to understand Jesus. Hear me clearly. He wasn't bringing about an earthly revolution that would cut off the leg that wore the thuggish food of empire. Nope, he offered something way more profound, and it was simply this, the power of the present moment. 
And all the yogis in the room said, hallelujah. The awareness that it's all, this is all there actually is. You ready? It's this moment. We've got this one. We don't have the past. We don't have the future. We have this moment. It's all we have. No other liberation could be more profound than Jesus' invitation for us to be aware that this is all we actually have. This is it. It's all we have. Every great spiritual master from every tradition in every space has found some way to say this. Now is all there is. The future never actually arrives. Think about it. This is all we have. And what does any of this have to do with genuine biblical community, preacher? I'm so glad you asked. It's pretty reliable. They keep asking on page six, Trey. Never mind. Shouldn't surprise us that the most profound truth is actually the simplest and the most intuitive. This is the place you look when communities fail. They fail in the boiler room. They don't fail up on deck. They fail deep down inside in the bowels of how they operate. Here's what I mean. It shouldn't surprise us that genuine community is hard to gain. And as far as I can see, it consists of a very few ingredients. You ready? Here they are. Number one, we have to learn to suspend memory well, you did that again? Oh, I can't believe you did that again. Well, you, aren't you always doing that? We have to learn to suspend memory. We have to suspend judgment, right? Just think of the life of Jesus. Just think of the, the life of Jesus for that. And we have to suspend shame, which is another lever that says, I want you to do what I want you to do, so I'm gonna make you feel really small until you do. We have to suspend memory, judgment, and shame if we're ever going to build genuine community. It's not made of complex things. They're, defi they're, they're almost so simple they defy logic. There's actually no approval or disapproval needed from you to build real community. Did you know that? There's actually nothing that, that the other person needs for you to approve of or disapprove of because they are the divine spark that they represent. The question is, how do we do life together in a way that draws us into those deep waters of knowing? It means, now get ready, even when you're getting hurt, even if you've been offended, even when you've been overlooked, even then we lean into the rigors and the terrors of genuine, authentic community anyway, because it's the only way. It's our only way to God, which is another way of saying it's the only way for us to confront ourselves and what rises in us when we live in real, transparent communion, which has always been and forever will be our only way back to God. Some of you have tasted of this kind of community, sometimes outside the church, if not more often than not, where play acting and pretense are less celebrated. You see, there's part of the issue, isn't it? Out there where pretense and preening and performing aren't celebrated, it's almost easier to develop real relationships, which brings up a good point. Just because community of faith, the community of faith is the best place to find this kind of community, I would say, it doesn't mean it's the only place. You see, church takes up about an hour of your week. If you're volunteering, maybe two. But the reality is your week consists of a whole lot more hours than those that we spend together, right? So here's how the logic goes. Your life is split roughly into thirds. You spend about eight hours in bed. You spend about eight hours working, unless you're Rick Cheatham and he spends way more than that. And you spend about eight hours doing something else, and we're gonna call that your third space. So sociologists would say, that's the third space of your life. My question is, where are we investing that third space? 
What are we doing with that third space? Now, you're accustomed for the bait and switch now because the preacher's going to make you feel guilty because you're not spending that third space here in the building, and yet I'm going to go the opposite direction and tell you the beginning of the end of every great Christian movement is when you begin to gobble up people's third spaces and you begin to tell them the only way to be an elite spiritual person in this place is for you to spend it with believers, to which I would say that's the problem. That's why we bury churches every day. That's why mostly people are opting out of organized church. And I say hallelujah because that wasn't the deal anyway. The gospel is as compelling as it has ever been. But churches that eat up, that occupy your third space become inert, ineffective. They become impotent. They become inbred communities of faith. And they have a very short expiration date. And by goodness, don't mortgage it for 30 years because your kids won't care because they shouldn't have to. These are the things that keep me up at night. How do we not become the kind of people? How do we not become the kind of church that eats up all your free time such that one day you'll wake up and look around and say, I don't even know someone who doesn't vote like me. Oh, that's the end. That's where the whole thing goes sideways. Genuine community was always God's original dream for all of humanity. You know the Bible wasn't written to the church, right? Some of you, that's deep revelation right there. You're going to need to have a burrito on that thought alone. It wasn't written for the church. God's dream was to have all of humanity back, and that's the plan that is deep into action as we speak. It's not about the church. These principles work everywhere in your life. You say, well, I own a company. I'm telling you, genuine community can be the result of doing things right in your company. To unfold, to be honest, and to welcome the unfolding of the other, that's the beginning of all of it. And that's what matters most. True, vulnerable, transparent, authentic, biblical community is more than what we do together as partners of this church. It's how we live in the world, which is all that matters. Can you hear me? It's all that matters. It requires us to square up to the risk of unfolding, and it requires that we collectively build a culture that invites that corresponding next step, that sacred next step of the other, which is to make space for their unfolding as well. You're going to want to pull out shame and judgment and correct, and you're going to need to make as much room for them as they make for you. That's the beginning of what community can look like. We said it this way as we described it. We see a church where people can find biblical community. We believe that the church should be the best, not the only, but the best place to build honest and and encouraging relationships that speak, share, and seek to live out God's truth. And you might have one remaining question. What truth? What is God's truth? Presence. That's it. It's the whole thing in a word. And if genuine community is the objective, now hear me, any church will do. Oh, you don't know, preacher, I'm about to leave this one because you guys, there's just no relationships here. There's no community here. I'm telling you, any church will do. Any group of people, be they two or three or 300 or 7,000, Any group of people will provide you sufficient opportunity for things to rise, for you to deal with those things in relationship, to be courageous around conversations, and to be gracious in your allowing of the other to show up and to not personalize that any group of people will do. My immediate family is doing just nicely, and I'm not talking about my children, talking about the other concentric circles, you hear me, any group of people will do if the objective is to become more like Christ. Because I'm triggered, and I show up anyway, and we repair, and it's better that way. I had this thought this morning as I was drinking coffee, thinking about these things. I'm not sure that what results in the Garden of Eden, where man is essentially invited to step out, 
mankind, sorry. I'm not sure that that was ever a mistake in the sense that was out of God's plan. The reality is relationships are made out of good repairing. That's what it means. And so if the, if the invitation is to live with God in God's spirit, if the, if the invitation is to dwell with his presence, there was always going to need to be active repair to this relationship. We're not lost, y'all. Eden is not that far away. It's about committing to this, this, this to not hide, to put it in a single word. Any group of people will push us in this direction. We're gonna wrap with this. I said this last week and I meant it. If this makes sense to you, if what we are describing as a community of faith resonates with you, if it quickens something deep inside of you that at least says, I wanna do this, I wanna be part of this, then the invitation is join us. Be all in with us. Do this, move from the balcony into the pit where the orchestra is actually creating the music of this church on South Lamar. Move with us, become contributors to us. Here's my promise. If you do, you will grow. You will look back a year from now and you will say, what a year it's been. Join us as we build this kind of church. Let's pray. Musicians, why don't you join me? Let's all stand. Let's make the noise now so the musicians don't feel self-conscious about walking on a squeaky stage. If you're visiting, we love the fact that you took a risk to come in here. You'll learn real quick that I'm not angry. I hiss because I'm passionate. All my people know this, right? Y'all don't even, you're not even scared by me anymore. It's tough because I can't even scare my kids. They're like, you hiss louder than that on Sunday mornings. Anyway. This stuff fires me up, y'all. This stuff fires me up. Somehow we've got the opportunity to build what I've always known could exist. I've always known it was out there. And I only experienced it in tiny little bits. And I think that's worth building. We're getting our stuff together. And we're deep, deep, deep into this process now. And so join us if this resonates. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We welcome you. We say change us, mold us. Move us in the direction that will allow us to see your kingdom come because it has already come. It is already here. And we love you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you've been around a while, you know our proclivity to pray the words of other saints as we prepare our hearts for the Eucharist. We've mostly done that with prayer cards that we've received through some clergy friends of mine who got them from youth serving uh, sentences in detention centers here on the border. Today, I have a, a different trick for us. Uh, so Caesar, uh, you might call him Caesar, which is dumb. I call him Cesar. So just tell yourself in your American mind, say sar, S-A-Y hyphen S-A-R, Cesar. Does that work? Can we practice together? Cesar? He's going to be joining us here in the UMC Rio Capital District. He'll be incubating with us here in church for a while. Um, God's going to do great things. He's been contacting me all week. Are you guys getting the stories in the media of what's going on in Venezuela? Are you hearing what's going on in Venezuela? And I'm hearing it, but we can't get over insane conversations about who won't let somebody fly on a plane or have access to the well of Congress to have a speech. Seriously inconsequential stuff is what we're hearing mostly in our media. And so you got to dig a little deeper. And Caesar's been bothered. He's been heavy with this. He knows a lot of people in Venezuela. And so finally I said, well, get someone to write a prayer. And so what I have today comes from a theology professor in Venezuela. And I'm going to read it in Spanish, and then I'll read it in English. And I just want, I, we just use these as little icons, okay? I, this might challenge you. I'm sorry. These are the words of saints whose experiences are schooling us into what it means to be the body of Christ. I can't remember the last time I had to pay a week's salary for a carton of milk, 
That is our brother and sister in Venezuela currently. They're experiencing 1 million percent inflation. Do the math. I'm horrible at the maths, but I think that's a lot of zeros. They cannot feed their families, and everybody wants to argue about a leftist and a rightist government, and everybody, I'm telling you, it's about people. It's always about people. So if you need to cup your hands and hold them before heaven, if you just need to still your heart, just create some space to carry this story, because this is part of our story. And so here's how it goes. I'll read it in Spanish, and if that makes you squirm, welcome to the reality of migrating people through our world that exists entirely in English. Sorry, our bishop always does this to us. He opens every pastoral meeting speaking for about five minutes in Spanish, just so people can sweat and remember. Not all of us speak this native tongue. All right, I'll stop. I can, I can feel the football game coming. Oh, there's no football today. Here's, here's what uh, <laughs> Professor Isnardo Giuseppe writes. Queridos hermanos en la fe, mis saludos. Para nadie es un secreto que Venezuela vive una de las horas más decisivas de su historia. Los venezolanos de hoy padecemos escasez de alimentos y de medicinas, ausencia de transporte público mínimamente seguro, mucha inseguridad social, hiperinflación e inestabilidad política, entre muchísimas otras otros problemas dolorosos de contar. Los valores éticos que con dificultad se habían sembrado en muchos corazones hoy parecen también escasear, tristemente. Incluso la fe de muchos cristianos profesos cuando no, hay, eh, no ha desaparecido del todo, se ha debilitado grandemente. Por eso, estimados amigos y hermanos, solicito de ustedes que nos recuerden en sus plegarias para que el buen Dios no sea propicio en nuestras tribulaciones. Suyo en Cristo, profesor Isnardo Giuseppe. Here's what that, what that says in English. I greet you, dearest brothers in the, fa in the faith, brothers and sisters in the faith. It's not a secret to anyone that Venezuela is living in one of the most decisive hours of her history. The Venezuelans today are lacking in food, medicine, public transportation, and there's a lot of social insecurity, hyperinflation, political volatility, on top of too many other problems even to mention. The ethical values that with difficulty had been planted in the hearts of so many now sadly are disappearing, including the faith of many that profess to be Christians. While it hasn't completely gone, it's been greatly weakened. Can you imagine the lawlessness of starvation in mass? That's what he's talking about. I don't know what you would turn to, but my kids will eat. They will eat, no matter what, it, what that means. Because of this, my dear brothers and sisters, I ask that you remember us in your prayers that our good God would be sufficient in turbulent, turbulent times. Yours in Christ Jesus, Professor Isnardo Giuseppe. 